Hello everyone and welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I'm the Grumpy Surfer and your host Ads Lyson. I've had a few weeks off so let's smash straight back into it. As usual before we start, if you're looking to improve your surfing, go to ombombe.co and have a look at their programs and if you use the code Ombi, again, O-M-B-E dot co forward slash ref forward slash grumpy surfer. You can get 10% off the programs. They're amazing. I'm still using them. And it really breaks down a beginner and intermediate surfing and advanced surfers surfing to make you better and do what you want to do in the water. So this fortnight's podcast is with a police officer in Bellevue, which is in the state of Washington in the good old US of A. My guest also is a skateboarder, a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and is very active on social media and has been for a while showing how jiu-jitsu and combatives can really help with dealing with arrest and restraint. On top of that, he's using his skateboarding finesse to improve his community relations with the residents of Bellevue. I wanted to talk to Craig for a long time. I've been following him for a couple of years now. So please enjoy my conversation with a quality guy, Craig Hanumi. Craig Hanumi, welcome to the podcast. Awesome ads. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Three questions. How are you? Where are you? And what are you doing today? Okay, well, first of all, uh, I'm very good. It's, uh, it's a beautiful day today in Washington. And um, yeah, I'm basically I have a day off today. So you're my whole uh, focus right now. That's it. That's all I have planned. So it's not Washington, D.C., which I got confused with. Um, it's Bellevue, mm-hmm. Washington State um, over on the West Coast, right? Correct. And uh, that happens to I'm from Hawaii originally. And um, before I moved up here, I had the same confusion. So you're not by yourself. <laughs> so a, a little bit about your uh, background. We won't go into it too much, but you joined uh, law enforcement. So you're a police officer in the, in the, in the U.S., uh, you joined up in 2003 in Honolulu, is that correct? That's correct. Yep, Honolulu Police Department, 2003, for uh, three years. Nice. And uh, what made you want to move from the islands to, uh, to the mainland? Uh, a few variables. The One was cost, cost of living plus salary. And of course, uh, like many people who relocate to other places, uh, my better half at that time, um, my ex wanted to relocate to the mainland. And after initially refusing, like many times in the relationship, the other person wins, right? So I had to, had to relent and uh, agree to move up here. So uh, that was 16 years ago. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's, you're kind of like a plastic mainlander now, right? <laughs> That's right. Yep. I, uh, yeah, settled in and um, no regrets. Worked out, worked out great. So going in line with sort of like the the whole premise of this podcast, are you a, a stereotypical Hawaiian that was into surfing when he was younger? <laughs> well, it would it would fit in well with this uh, podcast, but uh, I actually wasn't. My um, and people are surprised when they hear because I think people presume if you grew up on in Hawaii you have to surf, but um, and my parents didn't surf. Uh, 
where I lived in proximity to the beach was kind of, was probably about a, a good 20 minute drive uh, by a car. And if uh, you didn't have a car, you'd have to catch the bus, which would take about closer to 40, 45 minutes. And then you have to also have a surfboard. And since my parents didn't surf, uh, you know, they didn't get uh, one for me. And um, it was quite expensive. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not a surfer, so I cannot say, but I remember just casually looking once at a, at a store and I, I was, even as a boy, I was like, man, this is, I don't think I could afford this one. But uh, so skateboarding was my thing. I had the closest comparison, which was on uh, four wheels on blacktop and asphalt. That was my, uh, that was my hobby back then. It's a pretty, to be fair, skateboarding and surfing derive from the same thing, really, don't they? A lot of parallels. I believe a surfer was accredited with the first skateboard, if I'm not mistaken, back in the day. Mate, I, I couldn't tell you. I, I've got no idea about the history, but I just, <laughs> you know, I've watched the surf films to, to understand that bit, you know? Yeah, for sure. How did you find skating uh, earlier on? Because you, you started when you were like early teenager, right? Uh, I started when I was 10, oh, nice. 19, 1985. I, I tell people all the time, the, the movie back to the future was, uh, my first exposure to seeing skateboarding in, I guess, visually. And, uh, that, that hooked me. And then 86, 87, there's a bunch of videos that came out from a, a skateboard company called Paul Peralta, which, uh, is credited with formulating a group of guys called the Bones Brigade. And the Bones Brigade included people which uh, people recognized from just as uh, just, just uh, household names now, like Tony Hawk. Um, there's these four other guys, Steve Caballero, Tommy Guerrero, Mike McGill, and Lance Mountain. And together, they basically were like a, uh, a boy band of skateboarding. And they would go to uh, do demos and tour the world. And um, they came out with a bunch of back then uh, VHS tapes and Betamax tapes, which I, all, I bought all of them or my parents bought for me. And um, that was, that was kind of like the beginning of the skateboarding kind of explosion from the underground to, uh, which would now be basically mainstream. What were you more into street or were you into, you know, the park skating, the bowls and, uh, and the ramps and, and much like? That's a good question. Uh, we didn't have any parks. So back in the 80s on Oahu, the what the closest thing to a park was, was a ditch, uh, a storm drainage ditch for floods. And when there's no water in those, they're the closest thing to having a bowl. Some were even shaped like kind of like a bowl, but uh, there was no actual skateboard parks. Uh, there was roller skate places, but um, so I'd say street, you know, there's schools, businesses, and Places where you're not supposed to skateboard were our skate parks. And uh, I, I don't even know when the first park was built in on Oahu, but it was not until quite some time later. Um, so all we had was the environment. And I think that's how, that's how skateboarders kind of like it. You know, like you just, you look at something and be like, how can I skate that? <laughs> and then you end up trying to figure out ways to, uh, to skate it. So yeah, that's... Uh, not not spoiled like on the mainland like the, over here there's right now there's parks everywhere you know we're lucky uh skate skaters are lucky nowadays to have uh, so much access to good good uh good stuff to skate and not a lot of many people know this from listening to this podcast but 
you know, I'm I'm from um, I'm from sort of like the the Midlands originally, like in the middle of the UK uh, next to Birmingham. And uh, I started surfing when I was about 13, 14 years old. But because I was landlocked and before I could drive, um, I, I was quite heavily into skating. But I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't particularly that good. And uh, when I was at school, one of my uh, what we call the GCSE. So I don't know what your equivalent would be like when you come to the end of school. My mm -hmm. um, my design technology project was to make a um, just a ramp. And uh, it was out of uh -huh. uh, it was out of angle iron and some uh, some plywood. It was mm -hmm. the heaviest piece of shit you've ever fucking seen <laughs> in your life. And I, and I made it with uh, on a hinge so you could um, you could adjust the height of it. Well, honestly, mm -hmm. it must have weighed about thirty kilos to carry it around. It was so heavy. You have to you have to put it on your board to push it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it would have snapped the board in half. I think it added like a weight restriction, you know? Yeah, yeah, yes. That's but, uh, those, was it a transition or was it a bank? Was it a... It was just a, it was just a transition. So basically, it was just like an A-frame. Um, Got it. It had yeah. like a, a little bit of a, um, a lead-up ramp to it. So like you didn't yeah. you know, hit your front truck on it and just go flying forwards. Um, but yeah, I, uh, after, I, after I finished doing that, um, I was, uh, this is when I stopped skateboarding and there's a good reason why is I was just practicing ollieing up a curb and I yeah. stamped on the back and it flicked yeah. up and hit me right between the legs in my coccyx. And honestly, <laughs> I was oh. in the absolute hurt locker for about two weeks <laughs> after that. I was just pissing razor blades. It was horrendous. Oh. Yeah. That's the, that's the time to retire or take a break. Maybe take a break from that. <laughs> yeah. But from like the, the skate scene back in, in in around then so we're talking like early 90s sort of like early 90s mid 90s i was very similar to you you know all my all my surfing uh films came from vhs and, and betamax yeah. uh videotapes um i had a few snowboarding videos as well and uh and a few skateboarding videos so all my technique and my knowledge of of how to do tricks you know no one round where i lived skate yeah and uh it was really difficult i was literally like trying to teach myself how to do things and you try and teach yourself how to ollie let alone kick flip when Ooh. no one's shown you how to do it yeah it's a, it's a hard technique to, to just master on its own oh yeah yeah that's definitely a disadvantage when you don't have um in person or coaching of any kind right you i i think that's that's the good and the bad part about it i think uh like any individual activity the bad part is if you have no one else, you have to self-teach, uh, which can take much longer. But I think the, the neat thing about that is, I mean, with references from magazine or video, it's still possible. And uh, I think that's where the, the aspect of uh, those activities are so uh, interesting to people that enjoy them because there's a lot of independence about it. It's not like a organized group or it's just you, right? And uh, you can you can do it by yourself or with other people, but um, I think the self discovery is kind of the that, that's a that's a neat thing about uh, any of those like surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding. Right, you you can you in control of that yourself, and um, you in control of the pace too. Right, you can learn as slow as you want. <laughs> you can try to condense it, and uh, I think that's that's one of the that's one of the reasons why I was so drawn to it is because it was whether I succeeded or failed, it was all my fault. You know, 
So uh, you mentioned you you come from uh, Hawaii originally. Martial arts is is quite a prevalent thing within uh, within the islands itself. Yes. Um, you know, was that something that you were interested in uh, early on, or was it just skating? Oh no! Come on. Uh, I don't know how it is to grow up in other countries, right? Uh, but uh, as a boy in Hawaii, which is lots of like you said, influence from a lot of the different uh, countries of Asia, all the immigrants. Um, Martial arts is a, a big, was a big part of my uh, childhood. I don't know if it was because I just liked the movies or wanted to be like a ninja. Just I don't know what, <laughs> if that's a universal thing. I don't know. I feel like I, I don't think that's uncommon to go to uh, another place and may not be called a ninja, but just being some kind of like action figure um, kind of persona. Right, you try to like, well, how can I do that? Like, what is the what are the things I need to become that? And martial arts is definitely one. And um, I got I got I was lucky. My parents let me try a lot of a lot of different things. They 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 allowed me to kind of go with my interest, and uh, I got to try a lot of different things. Um, and in my mind, I don't know if they realized, but in my mind, I was just thinking like a little checkbox, a list. I was like, okay, I have some. Uh, some karate, I can check that one. I have some, you know, whatever else, kung fu I did a little while. And I was thinking in my brain, well, this is the steps I need to get to be a ninja. That was the the little process in my brain. And uh, I just needed a couple ones with weapons. And then, but I didn't stick with any of them for extended periods of time. Uh, I just was, I, I think right about the time when I would have probably gotten uh, decent at them, the skateboarding took over. So um, that was my main focus for the next couple of years uh, after that. I always found traditional martial arts, like you're talking about, you know, your karate, your, your, yeah. your uh, taekwondos, even kung fu and, and judo. For me, they were all very formal. Yeah. So, so when I, and they never re really related to me that much. So I did them all in like in a, in a YMCA sort of like setting, you know, um, like a youth setting. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I did karate for a little bit, but my mum stopped me from doing it because I was kicking kids at school. You know, this year, I'm talking like, <laughs> I'm talking like at quite a young age here. Um, it, it wasn't like, I mean, when I started doing jujitsu, much like yourself, I was like, you know, in my, in my early thirties. Yeah. Um, and it was only because I did it off the, off the back of um, when the waves weren't good in this country, which is, you know, quite often. <laughs> I, I was sick of going to the gym and doing the same old gym routines. Sure. Um, I, I wanted something different to do. And uh, it just so happened the the gym that I was working in at the time, a guy turned up who was a purple belt, black belt in judo, uh, purple belt in jiu-jitsu, just said, let's get some mats and start training. And that, that's kind of how I started like nine years ago was, was, was kind of through that transition. Um, and uh, I think the informal uh, way that, jiu-jitsu is comes across and and is, is taught and how i teach um really related to me quite a lot and i think that's why people find it quite addictive and stick with it oh for sure um i think everybody is different and uh like the formality of martial arts is definitely uh for some people turn off you know they don't they don't like that and uh i especially think that it would be very different from other activities that are typically paired with jiu-jitsu like surfing and skateboarding and, and you know all these sports were or these activities that are not formalized instruction right because it's almost like the opposite of what a person would 
they're looking for if they wanted to do something that didn't have uh, like a traditional kind of learning style. And if, if you had, if you enjoy the non-traditional learning style, yeah, you would definitely be turned off by a, you know, sit down, listen to the teacher scenario. Yeah, I, I, I get that a lot, um, especially when I'm teaching my students now. One of the one of the main things that came up was the fact that they were quite scared to come in into my um, into my school, and yeah. because they they YouTube loads of things on uh, on YouTube and read loads of articles on on, on the internet, and I think they kind of, they were kind of quite scared. Um, about yeah. starting something like that. I mean, one of the guys um, did judo when he was younger and he very much was in that formality kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like he didn't know whether, does he come in and does he bow to go on the mat? Does he call you sensei or professor? And I was like, hello, mate, how you doing? My name's Ads. Um, just come and put your gear on and, and we're going to do some training and stuff. You know, was, that was pretty much it. Uh, yeah. And, I, and I, but it also comes to how you come across as uh, as an instructor and how are you you are when you're teaching as well, um, you know, and to how people relate and how they how they learn off you too. Yes, yeah, everybody's different. Some people enjoy the the formalized setting, and some people don't. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a, there's always a way to balance it. In between, it doesn't have to be, you know, there's 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 there is value to having class that if you uh you know, start at whatever the time that it says on the, on the paper, then you actually start at that time. <laughs> like it's, 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 uh, it's definitely a balance uh, between both of them. And, um, but yeah, there's a draw to having a relaxed because the activity, like you said, as is, is very, somebody who never did it before would find it very uh, intimidating to start if it was, and a formalized setting may make it even more intimidating, you know? So I think okay. that definitely, I think one of the things that also kind of puts a stereotype into it as well is like, you know, these days, uh, the UFC MMA is, is very prevalent um, in the media. And, you know, one of the one of the parts of mixed martial arts is is ground fighting. And yeah. and when I one of the things that I try and do is and I even now I'm going to ask you this in a minute. Yeah. I find I find it very difficult is trying to explain somebody what jujitsu is without it sounding like super barbaric. Sure. Um, because when you tell somebody that it is, you know, ground fighting, you know, you take somebody down, you're pinning them to the floor, submissions, chokes, leg locks, lots and lots mm -hmm. of different things. They go, oh, my God. And especially when like they're asking about, you know, the kids as well. But then trying sure. to throw into that as well, you know, it's, it's really good for body-body uh, contact. Yep. You you learn about movement patterns and and all that sort of thing. That's actually really helpful to self-defense as well. Yep. Um, you can't throw it into like a thirty-second, you know, pitch. So yeah. this is what I'm going to do to you. What would your thirty-second pitch be to somebody asking what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is? Good. That's a hard one. Yeah. Good question. That's, I think, uh, I would say it's a form of, it's a form of self-defense that allows you to be able to control a person, um, using body weight and body positioning without, uh, hurting them 
if unless you wanted to. <laughs> and well, with no punch, no strikes, right? No, without without hitting somebody, being able to control, and um, yeah, have somebody have somebody under control without needing to hurt them, unless they gave you a reason to, or yeah, unless you chose to do so. So uh, a scalable form of self defense. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard yeah. to do about throwing lots of words into it to explain yeah. it. Not easy. So how did you get yourself into it? What was what was the draw for jujitsu for you? Well, for me, it was uh, work related. I I mean, I always wanted to, like I said, from the time I was a kid, right? I wanted to be like a ninja, but um, I kind of grew out of that. But then when I started going into my uh, current field of law enforcement, you clearly would would benefit with uh, some kind of way to protect yourself and obviously uh, potentially protect another person. And I'm not a big person, you know, physically. Um, so of course the need to have some kind of technique is, is more important. And from that, I just started searching online to, um, I typed in, I think I typed in police and jujitsu. And one of the courses that came up or one of the search things that came up was uh, the course that um, Hannah and Hidon teach, Hannah and Hidon Gracie they teach in Torrance called the Gracie Survival Tactics Course. And I saw that uh, it was called something else at that time. Um, but I saw there was a week long course that they had. And I thought I was, I, I thought that was super interesting. So I actually put a request in our training unit to, to attend it. And this was in 2008 and it got approved. <laughs> so I got, I got to go to Southern California to to for a week to train um with a bunch of other officers from all over the all over the world and i got to um learn from those brothers and that was my first official exposure to the art and it was great i mean it was probably the best scenario to to start off with a with a you know it's kind of like a summary of the art what it could potentially do and i was hooked after that i i it was exactly what I expected, which was just a kind of an overall summary of what can be done, what is possible. And um, that, that just got me hooked right away. So where do you train out of uh, where you are now? Uh, between, a, well, I don't have a home gym right now. So I split time at our station. Our station has about a, a 900, 800 square foot mat space. Um, and that's, that's where I just bring in people. Uh, I invite uh, close friends or people in the community who I know do jujitsu, a um, couple of coworkers. We have a handful of coworkers who train, um, uh, friends of mine who actually started skateboarding or I met through skateboarding who are now kind of old people, like in their twenties, late teens. And I invite them to, they, they wanted to uh, try jujitsu. And um, between that and, um, once in a great while, because of my schedule, I cannot consistently go, but uh, we have a gym right up the road from our station, about five minutes, called uh, 10 Planet Seattle, which is in Bellevue. And uh, that's run by a, a guy named Nathan Orchard, who is uh, one of the 10 Planet active uh, black belt competitors. And um, he actually, he asked two, was it two weeks ago? Two and a half weeks ago, he was just up in uh, the UK for the Polaris. Yeah, I went event. to watch it. Yeah, he's, he's such a... His, his jujitsu is so fun to watch. It's, uh, and you know, he's just, 
he's he's one of the he's one he's a very nice guy and he's a great teacher too. So um, I, I I learned a lot from he's, he's of course nogi right there there's their uh, their stuff is all nogi and uh, I just started doing that after he moved to our state about three years ago from uh, from Oregon and then he ended up just being right he set up his school right like five minutes from our station and up until that time I was primarily a gi person. Um, and so that was like, I felt like that was the sign I needed to get out of my comfort zone. Because if, uh, if I wasn't going to start doing nogi from Nathan, I mean, like what other way, you know, like it's, <laughs> I'm not gonna learn from one of the best guys, then there's not gonna be another person that's going to convince me, I don't think to try it out. So do you find that you're kind of the, the, the local coach then, you know, for, for, uh, for your area or when you're working? Cause when, when I was, um, you know, when I was in the Marines, you know, pretty much every single lunchtime, there was a group of us that got together on the mat. And mm. I was quite in a fortunate position for the second half of my uh, my career. Um, being a PTI in the in the Marines, I, I, I was able to set up uh, gyms and, and matted areas and, and be able to um, take guys on the mat and coach them all the way from blue belt all the way up to... Um, yeah you know, up to where I am now, as a brown belt, um, which which was cool because, you know, when you went to classes, um, you used to be able to take that information away with you and uh, and then put that forward to, to other people as well, which I always found quite useful. That's the best part of the art. I feel like the, the, the art is great because of obviously the, the fun of it and the ability to protect yourself and the exercise. I mean, those are all... Those are all good reasons, but I feel like the best part of the art is being able to share with somebody else. And then the, I mean, that's whatever group it is. Uh, I mean, we've been recently, our department, they gave me the green light to start to do um, some outreach uh, with jujitsu to do self-defense classes for women and free, you know, through our department uh, kind of coordinating. And we actually hosted uh, one at uh, Nathan's gym um last month and that was and we had 110 women show up for that and um we have another one uh, luckily again Nathan letting us use his gym again uh in a week and um I don't know how much people's gonna go but I mean it's a great it's like a win for everybody the department looks good the community uh you know the people attending really appreciate it and uh I mean it's a fun thing to do right like teaching teaching is like a it's a piece of the whole thing I mean, if you, if you don't have, you don't have to do it, but I mean, I feel like that makes you better at explaining something makes you better at performing it. And well, you, you have to break down what you do as an individual, you have to break down those components and then, you know, using vocabulary, you have to describe what it is and what you're feeling. Um, and one of the key things that I, I learned over the years of being a coach um, and going to other classes is by learning from those professors and their, and, and their, and their uh, way that they teach. You know, there's some people, I mean, you know yourself, there's some people that you learn are far more um, and you relate to than, than other people because, you know, you kind of have that, um, have that connection with them. Um, so I, when I'm coaching, I always try and tie those little bits in that, that I've learned off those, uh, those people. Yeah. And then while I'm coaching, I'm also thinking about what I'm doing. So I try and really piecemeal put things together about, right, this is the technique, 
but within that technique there are other techniques like your pressure where you put your toes mm. um you know little details about where you put your hands because it's quite easy just to teach a technique and go right go away and and learn mm. it and then people really don't get anything out of that so you're kind of learning yourself while you're doing it yes yeah 100 percent. and uh the the they complement that the teaching complements the performance and uh vice versa i think uh but they're two independent skills right like because you can be you can be high level practitioner but not be a good teacher <laughs> and then you can be the reverse you can be like an okay uh practitioner but a really good teacher so i mean you have to focus whatever the in a uh, piece of it is if you don't have the investment and in time into that piece it's just not going to be as good and uh they're not it does not mean you're good at one uh that you're automatically good at the uh the other one for sure how do you find the correlation with putting combatives into into police training because um i, I use a, an example from being in the marines you know i, I spent a long time um, we have a syllabus uh, or we had we have a syllabus. I'm trying to trying to use the past and closed tense because I'm not in anymore. That is a syllabus. There we go. Um, of teaching unarmed combat, which is a you know taking lots of pieces from boxing, basically like MMA, but put like you do, you train with your with your gear on, right? Um, but the way that it is portrayed and put across to the the trained ranks within the Royal Marines is that. They probably do like one or two sessions a year. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when they go and do, um, you know, room entries or any sort of like uh, close combative work, they struggle because they haven't got that, that interpersonal training where, you know, they're doing it, you know, a couple of times a week to, to, to retain that information because you know yourself with jujitsu, you can't go once a month and then, you know, be um, be able to put that into practice properly. You need to mm -hmm. be going, you know, once, two, three times a week to even retain that information, let alone those motor neurons automatically put that process while you're in a live situation. Um, so, uh, you know, what is it like within the uh, within the US Police Department? You know, do you have training each week that's set aside for things like that that's a good question and the answer is every place is different every every department every state is different every city is different and every department within each uh state is different and there's because of size of the agency uh that affects things like what kind of scheduling affects things like the staffing and coverage of a of a department and that affects the ability to train. And, and then you add on top of that, uh, the budget and you add on top of that, the ability of the, the training cadre. And, and so there's all these variables that when you put them all together, that, that that's not surprising how much variance there is because of all the different pieces that need to go into place and to make a, a good training. So, my answer would not even be able to represent the police departments in the United States. Like my answer would represent our city's police department and that's it. Uh, and the only two, actually the only two I could probably speak on with accuracy is the places that I've worked because like I said, every department is different. So um, 
I think the 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 transference of the skill set. I mean, if you look at what jujitsu, a piece of what jujitsu is, is control, and I mean that piece directly translates to what our job is. A piece of our job is potentially having to physically control somebody. So that is directly anything connected to doing that is directly applicable. Uh, and then, I mean, the submission part, that's the goal is not submission, right? If you're talking about what is the point of the control is to gain control, to take into custody. So that kind of diverts right from what us, the, the typical, I guess, answer would be um, in a jujitsu con uh, context. But up until that part, just that control piece alone. I mean, that's, that's a huge piece. And then the other side of that would be the uh, survival and escape. Right, uh, which is connected to control because if you don't have good control, you can be put in a position that is not favorable and then you got to get out of it. And um, so those two pieces would be like the, the most immediately transferable. And then to me, the bonus is a submission. Like, I mean, if you're doing a submission, you presume that you have a, a degree of control to at least begin that uh, process. And so if you don't have that, you're not gonna get to the submission anyway. So um, by that time, if, if there's any that are being taught, it's, I think that's more of like a, a bonus. Uh, there's some, some places and some agencies before, you know, they used to have some things inside of the, um, the policies and manuals that are allowed, like neck restraint, or right? Like, or what we call the rear naked choke, right? That was, that was in a lot of agencies. Um, I guess, what is it called? Manuals or curriculum. But uh, nowadays, you know, for the most part, it seems like um, those kind of techniques are prohibited. So what you have left is you have the control piece, right? That's, that's one of the, and some places, depending on what state you, you can't even, you can't even uh, do that piece uh, because of some rules uh, about like where you can put body weight on. Like some states you cannot, you cannot, you kind of put pressure on the, the uh, what do they call it? The torso or the, you know, you, you basically can't do chest to chest control. And if you can't do that, then how, I don't know how else you can hold somebody down, but uh, it's just really weird how those, you know, there's, there's a lot of policies and rules of engagement that, that different places make that ironically make it harder to, it actually makes it more likely that a person could get hurt either person, the officer or the, uh, the person getting taken into custody. You remove, um, you make rules that with the intent of trying to protect the person, actually ironically makes it more likely they're gonna get injured. Yeah, it doesn't sound too unfamiliar from perfect class. Now I've got my own personal views on this as well, especially yeah. the, the police in this country, because you know we don't carry firearms uh, like you guys mm -hmm. do. They've got tasers and stuff now, but. You watch some of the uh, some of the online videos of of police officers trying to arrest mm -hmm. people. It is it's shocking, like sh like shocking. Uh, and one of the things I always remember about this is when I was um, when I was a young marine. I uh, mm -hmm. you know you always kind of think that because you're physically strong and you know you. You, the job that you do, you know, you're a silly ideal or a death, you know, you're trained with knives in your teeth and all sure. that sort of thing. Um, 
you know, you're, you're a, what we would call a nails person or somebody that's quite hard, you know, um, mm -hmm. but what it comes down to at the end of the day is people that fight when we used to, you know, when I did, it was more of a lucky punch more than anything. Nine times mm -hmm. out of 10, you know, the classic cliche of what jujitsu is a fight ends up onto the floor. Yeah. Um, you've got absolutely no control over that whatsoever. And it, and it, pains me even now even now i'm three months out after leaving it just pains me to see that we still are not learning these lessons and there are not these policies put in place where you know you must do a limited uh, you know of um career uh career sort of like workshops per week where you at least try and twice a week for a bit of exercise in the morning or whatever you're doing for an hour where you're practicing these sort of things, you know, even something like that it, it is helpful. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, you've got these training objectives that people need to hit. And this is, you know, it's similar to you guys, as I, I would assume to what, what it was when we left, you know, you've got to hit these markers so people mm -hmm. can deploy or they can do whatever they're going to do. And, and I just think, you know, things that people are just missing just missing something, something that could take two hours out of your working week to potentially, it's going to sound a little bit extreme, but save your life at the end of the day. Yep. No, I agree 100%. Um, generally speaking, if you can use that term without, you know, being inaccurate, because it's hard to generalize anything, but um, I would say there's a, just because of a lot of reasons, over-reliance over, over on tools. And um, I mean, one of the reasons is because the skill set of an average officer is not going to be super high as far as the hand-to-hand -hand, uh, stuff, the ability to control, because I mean, that's not, there's just not enough uh, time to teach it a lot of times uh, to become proficient at it. And, or there hasn't been enough time devoted to it. Uh, and and realistically, right, the the most efficient way to to I guess address or not efficient, but the the shortest way to address a a disparity in size or strength is not to train somebody up to be able to deal with them uh, in a grappling match, right? Is to is to is like to give them a tool, like and then Taser Taser was created to kind of neutralize the disparity, and you know it's a it's a different way to be able to gain control of a situation. Um, I think the problem with that is this is not an all encompassing tool, right? There's definitely not situations that, uh, there's situations that Taser would not be a, a good tool, a, a good tool to use in. And I think we get stuck because there's, without an alternative, what else, you know, that person's not gonna realistically go to something else like their hands if they don't have the comfort in being able to do that so they'll defer to the tool and i think the problem is it is not always a applicable scenario to use it and um i don't know i, I mean the answer sometimes when you mention the um yeah that there's a bunch of uh, boxes to check for training uh that's 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 the case for a lot of places and um a lot of the times the training that's probably the best is not even on there it's not on the list um, and a lot of times it's because there's not a person internally that is able to teach that.
And then so the, the alternative, uh, next best thing, right? Sometimes if the agency is going to try to do something to get the skill set for their officers is they got to outsource that training to another entity, like a private school, a jujitsu gym. And the only, I mean, that's, that would be great. You know, I mean, and that's actually more realistic for smaller departments, because if you take a hundred person department of, of officers, the likelihood of you having a black belt or even any belt in that agency is very low within the department. So you would have to find the, the expertise someplace else. And that's great that, you know, that you can kind of, that's, that does multiple things, partner with the community, build relationships with uh, people who train, right. As well, that's a win for everybody, but um, it's hard because the training cannot be like, if you're first exposure to, and if you're thinking from a lens of, uh, okay, I need to do this for police work, right? I need to be able to control somebody as part of my job. And then you go to a jiu-jitsu class and the first lesson they're teaching is, um, I don't know, guard passing. And it's like, okay, what, how, you know, you, you, what, what does that have to do with being able to, I mean, I would have to have the understanding of being able to pass the legs, that's important, but like how, how immediately important is that for the officer? And I would say it's super low because like if it was me, I'd be thinking to myself, well, if you're the top person, what is, that's, that's, that's great, you're doing well. But what if you're the bottom person? That's our thing. I'd be like, well, what if I'm stuck underneath somebody? Like, how do I, how do I deal with that? Um, so sometimes the, the, the way of a typical jujitsu school the amount of time it takes to get to a thing that would be, oh, this is immediately relevant. Sometimes it could be like a month or two months, or it could be like, I mean, sometimes it might be half a year before something sticks out like, okay, this I can use. And I would include submissions into that because if the rules of engagement prohibits you from using things like a collar choke, triangle choke, rear naked choke, guillotine, like all those submissions are amazing. But I mean, if you can't do any of them, for a lens of uh, police work, it's like, well, that's cool, but that's not applicable to me. So all those submissions that I just named, um, they'd be useless. Like I can't, I can't do none of them. So if I can't do none of them, then like, even though it's great to know what, what, what benefit is it going to be for me to immediately? And the answer is zero. Yeah. You talked a little bit about the community there as well. So, um, I'm kind of digressing. I'm moving this conversation yeah. away a little bit. Um, you know, your, uh, your social media profile and that is kind of tied in, in conjunction with the, with the Bellevue police department. Um, how were they, when you started posting things about, you know, skateboarding with the kids and, uh, and all that sort of thing, how did they take that in the very beginning before they came on board with it? That's a good question. Um, every department is different. And luckily for my, for me, our agency, has a every every there's policies about everything nowadays for most places. Uh, if there isn't one, it will become one because somebody can probably do something um, questionable about it, and then they'll have to create one. Or another incident will happen someplace else, and people will ask, well, "What's our policy on this?" And if we don't have one, guess what? We're going to have to make one. Uh, for social media, luckily, our agency is very. It puts the discretion on the individual officer what they can post. So the, some places are actually a lot of places prohibit you from sharing anything in uniform at all publicly. 
So you can post anything, uh, any pictures or video of yourself in uniform. And the reason why people or departments are have those, right, is because either a person in that department or some person connected to another agency posted or did something that was not to be like to be, uh, questionable, right? And 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 then it makes, of course, they're they're not just representing themselves; they represent the city, the agency, right? Um, and so, in response to that, they say the response is a lot of times the. Uh, the reaction of okay well nobody can post anything anymore but luckily ours is not like that and um it gives us discretion to do so um you know i just started sharing stuff uh because initially my friends uh, would not be able to see any of the the good interactions that are going on because like most of the stuff that's happening that's shared is negative and when i started sharing those i started doing it just to show my friends like hey there's other interactions besides these negative things that's being shared that's going on on a regular basis. And I just started doing it to show them. Like I wasn't, I, 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 I did it to showcase my personal interactions with people in our community. That's how that Do you find by doing that, you're putting yourself out there. So when there are situations that you have to go and deal with, uh, and and you turn up it can almost kind of like diffuse it a little bit because obviously people in your community i guess would know who you are now through the things that you've been doing um you know that you've had some press releases and stuff about uh, you know about the interactions with with all the kids and all that sort of thing so you know in a way has it kind of inadvertently helped you well that's not by accident um one of the values of having uh, positive interactions and building relationships and rapport is that exact reason. I mean, once in a while, when we have to go into a situation to take custody of a person, I mean, it's a simple scenario. If you had to arrest somebody, would you rather have arrest a person that you have no rapport with or somebody you have good rapport with? I mean, to me, it's, a, it's, it's, it's clearly somebody that I have a good relationship with. Um, and the byproduct of that is if we have to eventually take somebody into custody like that, doesn't mean it's going to happen for sure, but there's less likely of a chance that force will be used at all if there's a relationship already in place. That's the byproduct of rapport and building those relationships. That's not the, the primary reason, but um, it does defeat it. It clearly is a benefit to our officer. And, you know, if, if you go in any scenario you think of almost, um somebody in a barricaded situation like what is the first thing if a person is in that kind of scenario what is the first thing that is done besides set up a perimeter and make sure that the the there's no immediate uh other people in danger what is the first thing to do in that one after you do all that i i guess you're just looking to preserve life aren't you really yeah, well, I mean, by 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 isolating the person, right? They 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 put themselves in a room and they're not coming out, right? So there's no other immediate threat inside the room with them. But after you contain that area and set up, like I said, perimeter, what's the next thing to do, right? If you get called to that, yeah, one of the I, next, I, I get, I guess you've just got dialogue with them, haven't you? You know, yeah. you've, you've got to talk it, about the situation. 
that's that's the that's the goal, right? And 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 imagine if you already going into that, you already had that. Like, how much easier is that? I mean, it's it's a huge. I think the problem with um, that piece of our job, building relationships, is it's not a quantifiable thing. Like, how do you how do you how do you quantify or how do you show that you're doing that on a Excel sheet? What what does that even look like? Like building positive relationships is not a thing that is, it's hard to tangibly articulate. It's not a data point. It's not a stat. Like how do you how do you create stats of positive relationships? Right? You you can't even you can't even gauge. So if I build a relationship with a a, a person in our community, was well, that one? Is that just like, like that doesn't that doesn't completely encapsulate what that means, right? That that could mean the difference between having to use force or not. And if that comes to that and there's no force being used, then, then I mean, clearly that was worth it, right? But the problem is the, uh, the, in, the return of the investment in time is not always something that you can, that you can uh, document like accurately, right? Because that takes how much, you know, that takes a lot of time. And that's not easy to do when you don't have a lot of time. It's not even possible when you don't have time, but, uh, the return is the, the the return of the investment that may not even be seen for like years, and um, I think that's the hardest part about it. Like uh, the benefit is always there when you when you need a, a scenario to be resolved like that, but you have to be willing to accept that the investment in time in the beginning, which could be a significant amount, or it could be just a few minutes, right, uh, spread out over whatever many weeks or months, but. Um, there's no immediate return, right? Like if, if it's, it's different from if you wrote a, a ticket or like took a report, because they oh one ticket, like oh five tickets or or ten reports, but how do you document and 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 track positive engagement? That's really hard. Yeah, that that whole piece of, I guess, not having that um, like god life presence or what you could what you would call like. Um, being the alpha, you know, you can you can compartmentalize that inside of you and actually be like a a, a nice person, uh, you know, to somebody, you know, at the end of the day, could be in distress mentally or, you know, I mean, I, there's there's a thousand million different um, variables that you could use for examples, um, but at the end of the day, you know, I I, th I think police officers are especially in America um are, are quite demonized purely for the fact that you know you you've social media and the media do kind of uh depict it that way uh however you know i'm going to use you as an example a positive role model within your local community but not everybody um within the police force is going to have the same personality as you do you know some yes. people are going to have um you know issues with dealing with people you know, even if they get into become a police officer, you know, not everyone's got those those personality traits where, you know, they can just talk to everybody, you know, and that's probably why it can come across as being aggressive. And then all of a sudden you're escalating um, a, a situation because, you know, you've not developed your own personal traits, I guess. It's, it's, a, it's a dichotomy. I think that's the hardest part about uh, about our work is it's 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 balancing these two opposing um approaches 
because sometimes you have to be very direct and give like uh, very, very, uh, uh, almost come across, uh, you have to be abrasive. Like for example, if there is a, um, if there's a collision that is uh, blocking the roadway, and if there's a person that's directing traffic and a car is coming towards that area and uh, not whatever reason, not, um, not recognizing like, hey, there's a person that's saying to not go that direction, then you might have to yell at them. <laughs> like, like that's for their own safety, right? Because if they go that way, they're gonna get into, uh, they won't be able to go and they might, um, you know, they might get hurt. Uh, same thing for a pedestrian, right? Walking towards the same uh, unsafe. If you have a perimeter for a barricaded person that has like a, a firearm, the, 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 you, have to, you have to prevent people from going <laughs> past that perimeter. And if somebody is going past the perimeter for whatever reason, because they're oblivious or not paying attention, they're going to get yelled at, right? They have, they, if you don't do it, they're going to get hurt. So there has to be a balance and knowing when to, to, to uh, modulate like your approach. Um, there, there, like you said, ads, there's some people who are more comfortable talking to people and some people who don't, who are not as good at it as it. And I would include myself in that group. I would include myself in the group that's not comfortable uh, initially, like uh, inherently being that way. But you know what made that more comfortable was um, the comfort at the state, the, the peace of mind that uh, I had knowing that if something went wrong, I would be able to have a better chance of protecting myself. So the physical component of training helps out the non-physical steps or things that we have to do. I mean, I think that that's a big piece that people who don't train don't understand. And uh, I think because a lot of the hype or a lot of the uh, promotional, if there is going to be training, right? It's a non-physical stuff. Uh, very, very um, emphasizing the verbal de-escalation and verbal uh, communication. Right? That's, that's, I think, a very prominent emphasis on if you can provide training, or it should be that. And then my only counter to that, which uh, you probably recognize is that's great to do. However, if you don't have the physical component to be able to protect yourself, the verbal piece is not gonna be as good, no matter what. I mean, you won't be as calm, you won't be as comfortable, and you won't be able to, it will be fake, right? It will be a, a, a artificial um, calm. Because <laughs> in the back of your mind, you're gonna be like, I don't know what to do if something goes wrong, right? Well, and, and I think it's the classic cliche of being uncomfortable, being comfortable in an uncomfortable situation, which is, you know, you go going back to what we're talking about, really, jujitsu is, is, yep. is, is, is what that te teaches you fundamentally. Yep. Yeah. And that, um, yeah. Just kind of changing the subject just a little bit. Do you find using jujitsu as sort of like your pastime and skateboarding, do you find that um, a, a mental anchor? Do you find that as like your, you know, your escapism, you know, being in the, any kind of public service um, job, whether it's, you know, um, ambulance service, fire service, police force, armed forces, um, we, you see some horrific and deal with some horrific situations. Um, I always found that, you know, surfing was my, it was my escapism and now it's surfing in jujitsu, you know, do you mm -hmm. find that similar to, to what you experience? Yeah, absolutely. The, there's a, there's a big promotional uh, push in the United States 
to uh, just try to emphasize more stuff connected to health and wellness. And one of the reasons why is because one of the biggest killers of first responders of any kind, police, fire, um, probably even people that's working inside of uh, ERs, emergency rooms, is suicide. And part of the reason why is the is because we, you know, the, the the nature of the work puts people repetitively in other people's worst points in their life over and over and over, right? Um, seeing the absolute worst case scenarios, sometimes by the same people repetitively, um, that's very, uh, you know, it's very, it's very exhausting to, to, to have to deal with sometimes. And um, I think the physical activity of anything is good, but uh, specifically stuff that uh, forces your mind to be focusing on the present which is kind of like what yoga and other forms of meditation do, except without the physical piece. I mean, that's exactly what, that's exactly what surfing is. That's what jujitsu is. That's what skateboarding is. That's what others like playing a musical instrument. They all, they all do uh, the same thing in bringing your, your brain to focus on whatever is happening right in that moment. And that's it. Not worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow or in an hour. Right, and it's just, just, or what just happened before, right? Um, it, it, it kind of, it's, it's interesting to hear people talk about other things because I don't do, um, I should do, but I don't do like yoga or meditation. But when I hear the benefits and the, the, the reasons why, it's the same reasons as the, all those, those other activities, but minus the exercise and minus the, the fun to me, like those, those things are enjoyable uh, as well as being uh, good to, to take a break from reality for a little bit. And uh, I don't know, it's just active forms of uh, present, being present and uh, having mindful meditation, but with physical movement, you know, it's just, it's, that's what I feel like those are, I mean, to me, the goal should be to do those things instead of just, uh, you know, I think that's a great first step to be aware of your, breath and everything like is a you know it's, it's still in stillness but i mean if you can do that and at the same time get exercise like why wouldn't you want to do that <laughs> i don't know that's just my own personal take on those uh principles no it's definitely a good way of putting it uh, you know I, i've uh, as i've probably mentioned before in previous episodes yeah you know, i've got into doing a little bit of a little bit of meditating and i don't mean like um I don't want to sound this derogatory, but you know, the, the hippie shit, you know, I'm sat there yeah. levitating, <laughs> yeah, you know, all that sort of thing. But you know, 10 minutes before I go to bed, you know, I turn off all the lights. I just count yeah. my breaths. I, I, I count my breathing for, for 10 minutes. It's, it's pretty much it. And, and I found, you know, with a bit of consistency, like training, you know, it, it has, it has had some benefits, you know, it's, it's grounded my crazy mind, you know, because I mean, sure. you'll find you'll find out yourself, you know, when you when you leave the service, eventually, you know, one of the one of the key things is really difficult to um, to deal with is your your mental escapism. Yeah, you find your 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 white space becomes bigger because you you're not thinking about, you know, what am I doing at work the next day and, and all that. Yeah. Sort of, you know, that that has become a little bit more prevalent over the last sort of like, you know, six to nine months really and i i found mm. that that's helped quite a bit 
that and um, audio books. <laughs> listen to a lot of audio books as well. Yeah, but, that's uh, a good. I think yeah, that's a good idea to do to uh, to have a just 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 for the routine sake, but just to um, kind of have a uh, it's like a winding down kind of. Literally, you're you're just kind of reflecting and yeah, just being aware of your like you said the breath work. That's that's a good idea, especially at the end. You know, at the end of the day. Yeah. Do you watch much jujitsu? You know, do you watch a lot of MMA or or um, or any of like the stuff on flow grappling? Are you are you into that? Well, first of all, I try to. <laughs> I like to watch it if it's uh, if I don't have to pay, <laughs> and if uh, one of our friends has the. UFC fight pass, you know, and they, they have a get together. I mean, it's, it's for those kind of ones, it's more to like, just get to hang out with uh, friends as much as it is to watch the event. And um, I, I like to watch like the highlights. Uh, and, and if somebody, like I said, if somebody else is hosting something, uh, I would go to watch it and just hang out. But um, I mean, I, I myself don't have any of the subscriptions of stuff. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I so kind of like trying it. to say is you're not a jujitsu geek. That's what you're trying to say. I enjoy thinking about the aspects of all what's happening and how each person is doing what they're trying to do versus what the other person is trying to do. I enjoy that piece of it. I just, I just, I don't know. I, I like that. I don't have the, I'm not uh, that much uh, in, in intertwined with the thing because um I don't know. I just, I, th I think it, it, it can go too much in one direction. And I think knowing my personality, it kind of, I end up uh, doing like an overinvestment a lot of times in, in a thing that I really like to do or uh, I'm interested in. So uh, I think to kind of modulate myself, I, I, I like it like where I can, like I said, if it's for free, I might watch it. Um, uh, I understand though, uh, like from a casual, casual fan's perspective, why it's uh, very difficult sometimes to get people to to watch a grappling match because if you don't if you don't do it you you don't have really a context of what's happening and then and many times when there's two people who are even high level uh, going against each other it almost looks like nothing's happening <laughs> and and to a person who has no context of anything it, it looks boring to be honest. Uh, Unless, unless there's a lot of movement, right? Which is why people, I think, gravitate towards no gi so much because you have less likelihood of two people just staying in a fixed uh, position. And people don't understand jujitsu, but they do understand two people moving around in relation to another person, which is why I feel like that's a little bit more uh, transferable of a, of a thing to appreciate. But um, maybe, man, it's just, if you have two people, one person who is really good at... Uh, uh, takedowns and other person who has good takedown defense and you know if you have two people who once the the, the engagement starts then um, they're trying to not have the other person get any kind of advantage and then they disengage when that engagement becomes in against their favor it looks like two people are just not doing anything right and I think that's the hardest part about the sport is if it's going to be conveyable to a, a general audience like how the goal is a lot of uh, for a lot of promotions that's not the way to, that's not the match to, to showcase, right? You, you, you don't want to showcase that one to people like, Hey, this is jujitsu. They're going to be like, well, why would I watch that? Or, or the opposite example is two people who are grounding themselves at the same, like two people who double guard pull, right. And 
it just doesn't look appealing. I mean, I mean, I think I can say that, right? As, I mean, I don't. If there's somebody like, well, was, if somebody disagrees with that, I think they're kind of in denial about what what normal people who don't train uh, find interesting. Like, you just that does not relate to a, a average person when you see that, right? It's like, what is that? Like, what does that? What does that even? How does that even connect to like a real, you know, to me? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, people don't understand how difficult it is to get into certain situations or certain positions and, and hold them to, yeah. to slowly progress through. Um, but again, you know, that's down to the individual um, being a little bit, you know, in denial about, you know, what they're doing. And if they don't train it, then that they're not really going to understand it. You know, a classic is a classics, the uh, Khabib stuff where we used to take people down and they just slowly work up and pin yeah. them and maul them. People don't understand how difficult that is to do to such yeah. high level people and make it look easy and smash the shit out of them at the same time. So, um, yeah, it, it's kind of it's kind of one of them. I, I can see why it's not appealing to some people. Um, you know, I, I was one of those guys that was definitely I like to do and not to watch. That sounded quite sexual, didn't it? I didn't mean it that way. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, I'm the same boat, same way. Right. We've been going about an hour, mate. I've got five questions here that I want to try and knock out nice and quick to you. Um, sure. And uh, yeah, let's just see how you answer them, I guess. So what's the best thing about being a cop? Um, literally being able to save somebody's life. And I make like in that way. What's the strangest thing about being a cop? Um, your perspective of, of humanity, uh, drastically changes so that the people, the things that people see once in their life become normalized to you. And because it comes normalized to you, because you see it more often, your perspective about society and humanity will drastically change, which will make your interactions with normal, typical people weird sometimes because your sense of humor will change your context for what is what is funny will change and um and then if you bring that outside of the realm of police work to normal typical society like in a party people gonna think you crazy <laughs> well, yeah that's that's that you have to remember like normal typical people don't see stuff that is weird a lot if ever and you see it all the time. So your your perspective on what is weird, funny, whatever, will be completely different. And it will it, you have to be mindful of that. Otherwise, you know, you can get some weird uh, responses or looks after you start sharing stuff. Well, that's that's kind of why you call it dark humor, isn't it? You know, public service people are definitely um, a little bit. Their sense of humor is a lot darker than most people, and they they don't get it. it. Yep, hundred percent. Uh, what's one of the most bizarre incidents you've attended or been part of? <laughs> uh, a, a PG one that I can share, right? Like, uh, there was a there was a person who had a therapy pet, therapy pet that was a bird. You know, there's all kind of animals, right? Dog, cat, everything, but a bird, therapy pet bird that the pet bird had the wings clipped. So they couldn't, you know, fly away. But 
it can still people if you have I don't know if you ever had like a seen a bird that has clipped wings it can still fly right just not for it can like go from a, a countertop to a table and back and forth but not for extended periods right but it can still it can still uh, go from one place to another point without walking so the bird got away and then uh, it was able to go into a tree you know the tree that office the, the owner could not recover the bird from and the bird didn't want to come down so the response was of course the person they uh they wanted their pet bird back and they just wasn't able to get it. so they called 911 and they the emergency number to I say hey my my therapy uh bird pet bird is is in a tree can can you know so they send the fire department right um they have the the trucks with the ladder and the tree is probably about it was a big tree and uh i'd say it's at least 10 feet you know uh, up in the air uh i should say uh in, i'm gonna use the metric system but um anyway it's about the height of a basketball at least that high right basketball rim so the person can't get it so they bring the truck inside and then they're doing the with the with the ladder and then with the ladder they they are having the person try to navigate to because the bird doesn't want to it's going to get a human contact it's going to fly to another branch and then on and on right so they're trying to deal with that and while they're dealing with that you know it's creating a, a from the outside you're looking at it it's like it's like what's going on here right there's a fire truck with a ladder in a tree so people walking past this right there it's in a parking lot of a shopping center so we had to kind of block so that people uh, would not be able to drive through it because it's a fire truck. And so people, I'm, I'm positioned on the outside of that, just kind of making sure people don't just drive uh, in between. And then they're asking me like, what's going on? And I'm like, uh, well, somebody's um, trying to get their pet. Uh, oh, they, 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 they assume, this is what they asked me. There was like, oh, they see, they see fire truck and a tree and they go, well, it's like, is somebody's cat stuck stuck up in there? And then I said, like, no, it's a bird. And they and they go, oh, okay. And then they have a look like, what? What are you talking about? So yeah, it's a, a bird, a, a pet bird stuck in a tree. And then just just weird stuff like that happens once in a while, you know. Um, I, I think it's kind of funny because when you when you look at that scene, it's like you're not you're not envisioning an animal that has wings. That is the thing that this fire truck is uh, trying to save. So. Sounds like a good use of taxpayers' money as well. Well, you know what? Uh, what the, 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 the thing is, like, <laughs> the fire truck, guess what? They'll probably ask us, like, hey, can the police, can the police uh, get it? And then, you know, they, what, what do we even have that is, they would have to go to the pet store to buy a net, you know, uh, 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 to, to, um, to try. And then, I mean, uh, there's no other thing left, right? What other, the animal control, I guess, they're going to try to contact them to... Uh, to facilitate it <laughs> i don't know you can play that game like when you were kids you something stuck up a tree so you just get a rock and throw it at it it's the first one to hit it up yeah. the tree <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know if the owner would have liked if us throwing rocks at that bird but um yeah, yeah i mean we we get we get called to things all the time that is like why why is the police getting called to this um and that's and then the, the dispatchers try to try to uh kind of filter out some of the ones that okay no we're not sending the police to that but there's still some that we go to it's like that's not we're not the right person for it we're not the right entity for this situation but that's all there is left you know there's no other alternative so sometimes we get to like uh i mean yeah 
I, I can think of a few more, but that's all right. M maybe next time. <laughs> what would you do if you won the cup? That's a good question. I would probably. I'd probably be. No, I'd be working. I'd in some way. I'd be doing some kind of service-oriented job. I just feel like that's my that's my nature. Like that's what I would gravitate towards. So if I wasn't doing a job that had some kind of ability to to provide some service to some piece of the community, I would probably hate that job and eventually quit it and do another job that has some kind of uh, dynamic of it. Maybe so. Before I did this job, uh, this field, I was working for three years as a a behavioral aide, which uh, that that'd be like a one-on-one -on -one aide to teens that had uh they're on the autism spectrum well that's and, because uh, you you were um, you got a degree in psychology right i did and that was one one job that was able to utilize that degree and uh i enjoyed it i mean that was great uh actually that was actually great training for our job right now because we deal with people who have uh varying kinds of mental health issues all the time every day and um i mean including autism and uh yeah, I would enjoy, I, I enjoyed work like that where I could um, be able to engage with people in the community, uh, especially if they needed some kind of support, something, some assistance. I don't know. Awesome. Craig Hanami, wow, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. And mate, keep doing what you're doing on socials, mate. You're absolutely rocking it. And it was a joy to talk to you today. Well, thank you, Ads, for having me. I need to talk to somebody from, um, I don't know, we would probably be pretty close to halfway around the world from us, each other, right? Yeah, like, it was an eight-hour time difference. So, yeah, it's pretty much pretty much the other side of the planet. <laughs> That's very cool. One day, maybe, hopefully, we can train together somehow. And, um, yeah, that would be, be awesome. Yeah, give it 10 years. It'd be like, you know, virtual reality. We'll put some goggles on and we can try and strangle each other through the oh, internet. I guess. In, 10, in 10 years, we won't have uh, teleportation. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be like, like Star Trek where you could just teleport around the world then. Right, exactly like that. Hopefully, crossing my fingers. That'd be amazing. <laughs> if we could do that, I'd be in Indonesia every other day. <laughs> right. Me too. Cheers, mate. Okay, take care. See you later. And that's it. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider. Leave a little review on Apple Podcasts and I will see you for the next episode in the next couple of weeks. Thanks for listening.